welcome to the 3Ls Podcast, where I, your host, Rachel Ann Dine, licensed professional counselor, am here to share thoughtful commentary and strategies to help you with the big 3Ls of life, living, learning, and loving. Each episode, join in as a different psychological or current hot topic is explored with the hope of helping you live well, learn something that aids in personal growth or understanding, and love yourself or others in a way that honors you. Are you a fan of nutrient-dense wellness too? Let me tell you all about one of my favorite sources of adaptogens, Four Sigmatic, who uses a variety of mushrooms in everyday products. Reishi, lion's mane, and shaga all have been shown to help with thinking, immune system support, and gut support. I use these plant-based products every day in my smoothies and coffee, and you can too. Use code BEWELL for 10% off your purchase at us.foursigmatic.com. Again, that's BeWell at us.foursigmatic.com. Hi, welcome back to the three L's. I'm so, so excited to be back and I'm so happy that you're here today for the launch of the the real first episode of season three. I have missed recording for the three L's podcast and I'm really excited about this season because if you heard my sneak peek, I'm taking a deep dive into some of the pathology behind negative human behaviors that are pretty common. And today's episode is going to be nonetheless. I really wanted to kick this season off with a topic that it just seems that we are seeing more and more about every time you turn around. And that's all about the abuse of power. So whether it is key players like Epstein, Harvey Weinstein, Keith Rainier, and most recently, potentially uh, Bill Gates and his association with Epstein, this abuse of power not only happens on that major scale, like those people who I just spoke about, but also on the everyday level, whether it's a religious sector, whether it's a doctor-patient relationship, or even a therapist relationship or a life coach. And so I want to tap into what is the abuse of power? How does somebody start abusing their power that they have? What's a power differential? And just kind of give you some background information, kind of a study of sorts so that you're aware and just have a a deeper understanding of why this happens and even how to recognize if it is going on. And I am going to pepper in a little bit with how sometimes even the self-help culture can uh, contribute or people who posture as self-help experts are putting themselves out there. But if you really dissect the information that they're giving to people, it can actually be more harmful than helpful. I'm seeing that all the time. And believe it or not, this is just a brief tangent. The self-help field in 2019 was a almost $33 billion industry. And so I'm not here to demonize self-help or even any kind of religious practices, but I do want to just share that self-help is one of the most unregulated industries out there right now. And 
if you take a deep dive into the world of Google searching for a coach or perusing on any kind of social media outlets, there is a coach for every possible, you know, plague that ails you. Um, And so I just want to point out maybe some characteristics to keep an eye out for, but also just to to talk about how this abuse of power comes to be. And it's a topic I find very interesting. And if you know me, you probably have seen that I've shared on my own Instagram in the stories. I'm a huge fan of The Handmaid's Tale. I carve out time every Wednesday when it come, the new episodes come out. I just love it. And last night, I noticed it was the episode – well, I don't want to give too much away, but basically one – lady was talking about how it's hard when you have all the power and you have to really remind yourself how to use that power effectively. And I just thought it was very apropos to the topic today because power is not inherently bad. To have a sense of power, to be at the head of an organization or head of a church is not a bad thing. Power can be used for good. Power can be used for positive influence. And I think sometimes people, I I don't think, I know that sometimes when people get into a position of power, they use it for good. They use it to help try to change the world. But for the sake of today, like I said, I'm interested in kind of when the use of power turns into the abuse of power. So I want to kick it off by reading a couple questions from a great body of research that I found called The Obsession with Greatness Leads to Power Abuse. And this was taken from cielo.org.za. I've linked it in the show notes if you want to take a peek at it because it's quite interesting. But it was written by uh, Elizabeth Cornelius. She's a faculty of theology, uh, New Testament, Northwest University in South Africa. And she brings up the fact that power abuse is often the reason for corruption, violence, and many other crimes. And in her article, she really focuses on the reasons for power abuse and the reasons why when people come under power, and I quote, why people morph into beasts. And I feel like that's pretty interesting way of placing it because when we think of a beast, it's somebody who no longer, in my opinion, identifies with being empathetic to other human beings. And they start to almost use people and see people as objects rather than as human beings. And this is something we'll get into actually in just a couple minutes because it's part of that that roles that not the roles, but it's kind of part of how the morphing happens when people start to abuse their sense of power. So Cornelius says that some say it's a result of an aspiration for superiority, where others say it's an act of a typical personality type, namely the ruling type. So Cornelius, in her research, begs the question, is it an obsession with greatness? What is present or absent in a person's life that makes them obsessed with greatness? And in all of my research across the board, when somebody gets into these positions where they abuse their place of power, there is this obsession with greatness that's almost insatiable. 
And it's hard to find that stopping point. And so more and more, they push the envelope. They say things that are fraught with shock value or inaccuracies. And it's a very interesting phenomenon on how it occurs. So the the definition that I found to be most applicable, because we hear abuse of power and you know, sometimes it can have a little bit of ambiguity. And so from the another research, body of research from OJP.gov, crime and the abuse of power offenses in offenders beyond the reach of law, they define abuse of power as the misuse of a position of power to take unjust advantage of individuals, organizations, or governments. And abuses of power have been variously described as white-collar crime, economic crime, organizational crime, occupational crime, public corruption, organized crime, and governmental and corporate deviance. However, those common elements of all of these different crimes of abuses of power is deceit. And although they say that these acts have been perpetrated since the earliest history, which I would definitely agree if we go back to what Cornelius was mentioning on the ruling types. Let's think about kings from history where they had ultimate power and the capability to abuse it. If you angered the king, you were going to be punished. And so this article supports that and says such acts have been perpetrated since earliest history. However, recent technological and social changes have created a climate more conducive to them. So I would also really put out there that the presence of having so many different forms of information at your fingertips through the internet, through social media, has kind of gone into the rise in popularity of some people gaining access and getting into positions of power, whereas they ordinarily wouldn't. Um, but I'm not fully blaming social media because we know that people like Jim Jones, who created Jonestown, which was the cult many decades ago, I think it was in the 1960s or 70s, they didn't have social media, but they were able to really abuse that sense of power and do a lot of harm. And so once again, not fully blaming technological advances, but I do think with the rise of them, it's become more prevalent. and. With the abuse of power, and I'm kind of like setting up the stage here because there is so much that goes into it. It took me quite a long time to really organize my thoughts in terms of how to examine why somebody abuses their position of power. And just to illustrate this example even further, when I say that we're seeing these things happen all the time, even recently here in my local city, there was a physician, an OBGYN, who was performing non-necessary surgeries on his female patients and billing insurance. And there was a huge financial reasoning for why he was doing that. And it was driven by finances, which we'll hear kind of goes into the recipe that creates a stage for the abuse of power. I will also share that in some self-help 
modalities and what I've observed is that sometimes the self-help guru, you know, self-identified self-help person places themselves in a position of power and uses languaging that promotes almost this internal need of somebody viewing their material to buy whatever it is that they're selling and that they have the secrets to whatever is going on with the person who's needing changes. So that was one thing that I wanted to bring up kind of right off the bat that these promises that we're seeing, and this is kind of going on brief tangent here, but in terms of self-help stuff, Anytime that you see somebody stating a promise, a claim that they have the answers to transform your life, this is something to be very leery of because how would they know that? They aren't intimately acquainted with what's going on with you. It's this generalized claim that if you want to transform your life, join my program. It's 10 grand. I've got the answers. Maybe they do have some really great information, but because self-help is super unregulated, it's very, very foreign from what therapists abide by. We have a set of ethical codes that we are not allowed to make any kind of false claims. You know, like your anxiety will be gone if you work with me. Or um your life is going to be exponentially changed if you come and see me. Because the truth is, we don't know. You know, much of what happens in the therapeutic setting is dependent on how much a person is willing to engage in the evidence based research techniques that are provided to them. So, that, that has always been something that stood out to me. Is it an abuse of power? for somebody to posture like they have all the answers uh i would i would say yes because you're putting yourself in a place where you know everything somebody else doesn't you're capitalizing on somebody else's weakness or vulnerability and a lot of times it's profit driven you know i will also share and once again i'm not demonizing religion or the church i grew up in the church um i have my own religious beliefs but i've seen how people even in positions of power in the church the heads of the church if they're not careful then they can get bit by that bug of the abuse of power. We see we have seen news articles time and time again where well-meaning congregation members, people attending the church have um had horrific episodes of abuse occur to them and things of that nature. So anybody and this this next piece speaks to what is called the power differential and how the power paradox are dynamically linked. And this is from hackomeninstitute.com. I'll link this in the show notes as well so you can take a read. Um, this is a body of research that was looked at, and it's called the power differential and the power paradox. And so I can't mention the abuse of power without mentioning the power differential. The power differential is the enhanced amount of role power that accompanies any position of authority. 
The power paradox is the term given to the information emerging from research that shows while we have inborn neurological connections for empathy and altruism, these natural impulses tend to degrade when we are in positions of power or rank. And this article was really here to promote how to not abuse your place of power and was very fascinating to me. So I won't, uh, you know, I, I will definitely link that so you can take a look at it if this if this further interests you. But I did have to bring up power differential is something that we don't always talk about, but it is ever present. So I want you to think about if you go to the doctor, sometimes I hear stories where maybe somebody was not comfortable speaking up and advocating for themselves, whether it was with the doctor or even with an employer, because that person had a position of authority, whether it was over your medical health or in the position of working for somebody who abuses their sense of power, it can very much be because they hold the keys to your next paycheck. And so um, if not careful, the, the power differential though is ever present for anyone that has a position of authority. And that's why I bring up the church, um, once again, not to demonize it, but I also bring up therapists and doctors and um, heads of corporations, because it's anyone who is deemed to be in a place where they hold the answers, they hold that transformational key to somebody's success. When there are financial issues, financial um, aspects at play, like when you're working for somebody, it can be very, very hard to speak up. I think that um, I think about Jeffrey Epstein, who I'm actually doing a deep dive into common characteristics uh, that he and several other men had who abused their power grossly in a future episode. But I think about him in terms of he controlled a lot of finances for other people. And also, the more that he rose and was able to social climb and make these connections and people depended on him and his level of income rose, the more grossly he abused his sense of power, the the more that he stopped viewing people as people and really kind of started to objectify human beings. And as you'll see, the one common characteristic that has popped up time and time again over the course of my research with this episode was that narcissism was just so tied to somebody abusing power. And when somebody's narcissistic, there is a complete decrease in their ability to empathize with another human being. Now, if I take it a step further, I really noticed that this came up with a certain self-help guru, and I'm kind of trying to be careful with mentioning names here, but Rachel Hollis, I'll just say it, because I noticed that after a period of time, well, first of all, I'm sure if you're listening in, you've probably seen, this is really old news at this time, but you probably saw the video that she posted not too long ago. It has since been deleted. But it was probably one of the most non-empathetic, privileged, and demeaning videos that I have ever seen from a person in a position of power. It was just shrouded in almost the sense of superiority of 
She is better than everybody, and that's why she has gotten into her place of power or, you know, as successful as she has been. And it was just, to me, honestly, that was really a big inspiration for creating this episode because that was just such a prime example of having a huge audience that subscribes to you. And if not careful, your motives really start to be profit-driven versus actually wanting to help people. You know, I look, I think about that video that she posted, and I don't even know what the motivation was. I feel like it was just a prime example of somebody who has really gotten out of touch with what it's like to be human and to not, you know, not even demonstrating the capacity to put herself in somebody else's shoes. So anyways, okay. So let's, let's keep it moving. I want to talk about, um, the toxic triangle characteristics that can arise from destructive leaders. And again, I am bringing this up because I want there to be some education on how this rise to abuse of power occurs. To me, it's fascinating how someone can start to have these toxic traits. And oftentimes it's a slow role. It's a slow development. Somebody doesn't get into a position of leadership and all of a sudden, bam, it's toxic. There's often many different events that occur over many years. And once again, I can't help but think about even Harvey Weinstein. I mean, he didn't necessarily start out abusing women, but it was uh, a slow roll, a trickle. I mean, we see that there were covered up sexual harassment claims a couple years into his rise to power and his rise to fame, and they were all covered up, and then they just continued to steamroll and explode. So, okay, I found this article. It's by John Joyce and Natalie Tracy, HoganAssessments.com. And they talk about how the concept of leadership has traditionally been discussed in positive, constructive terms, which I would agree. I mean, if you take a quick Google search, we see so many articles about how to be a good leader, how to lead your team. And the focus, though, has increasingly shifted towards the darker aspects of toxic leadership. Many of these darker aspects often will lead an organization or a group of people into bankruptcy, corruption, and scandal. So the cycle of destructive leadership often happens aggressively within an organization and creates a perfect storm amongst leader. And they they advocate that there are follower and environmental factors that converge to form the toxic triangle. So out of all my research, there's a lot out there now on toxic leadership. Um, I felt like this toxic triangle I'm about to go over really, really nailed down how this abuse of power happens. So, all right, what is a toxic leadership? When I say that, what happens? And so to get right into it, essentially there are three elements at play. Destructive leaders 
conducive environments and susceptible followers. Now, when I say susceptible followers, I am in no way blaming people who follow people in positions of leadership. As you will see, the person in leadership, oftentimes when they go corrupt, they are expert at manipulating, using coercion, using forms of abuse like intimidation and fear. And we'll, we'll, so I'll go a little bit more into detail about what it means to be a susceptible follower. I just want to put that disclaimer out there, not here to blame anybody that gets caught up in the trap that can be the toxic triangle. And so we'll get into that in just a second. So let's go ahead and we will define what a destructive leader looks like. So Hogan and Kaiser's research shows that destructive leadership is made up of five critical factors. This is so interesting to me. Charisma, personalized need for power, narcissism, negative life themes, and an ideology of hate. And... While some of these may seem severe to certain people in leadership, the people who have really exploded into the media and that we've seen grossly have abused their position of power, these are just so spot on. It's unbelievable. And this is, I'm thinking about Epstein, Weinstein. There was the, um, I believe he was the Olympic gymnast doctor who was abusing the gymnast. And Keith Rainier, um, even the the man who locally was the physician, OBGYN, who was performing all these unnecessary surgeries on women, definitely um, these fit. So let's dig in. So when I think, and when they talk about charisma, the most exploitive leadership contains an element of charisma that generates an air of authority. So charisma is also something that most narcissists have. They have that ability to be very charming, people-pleasing. And narcissism can also be tied to another personality disorder called antisocial personality disorder. And antisocial does not mean antisocial, which it's always, you know, been interesting to me why it was called antisocial personality. It's, it actually means when a person goes against societal and ethical norms, but typically someone with antisocial personality disorder is so charming. They are so charismatic. They know how to speak to people. They're extremely manipulative and um, usually involved in criminal acts. And so charisma is one of those one of those characteristics of a destructive leader. And how do you think that somebody gets into a position of power? That's why I'm saying that when we use the term susceptible followers, oftentimes it's a person who's really posturing as a wonderful human being. You know, maybe they do a lot for the community and they're living a double life that so many of the people following them don't even realize. So Then we move on to there's an aspect of a personalized need for power. So good leaders use their influence to improve the lives of others, while destructive leaders use their positions for personal gain and self-service. This could also come in the form of financial self-service. And it can manifest with a desire to control every aspect of an operation and can even take the form of appealing to a follower 
and the follower's need for protection, security, or inclusion. I see this happen in a lot of cult development, which I'm having a whole other podcast on the development of the modern day cult. Because oftentimes there's a messaging, and this has been across the board with any cult development from Jonestown to, um, you know, Heaven's Gate or Heaven's Angel back in, I think it was the 1990s or 2000s to most recently Nexium. There was such this message of protection, security, inclusion that was put out. And those are all things that all human beings want and need for their own kind of mental health and sense of well-being. And it's just interesting when destructive leaders get into those places of authority, they exploit that. So um, the personalized need for power. And then we've got narcissism. So narcissistic leaders often exhibit dominance, arrogance, and entitlement to demand an unquestioning adherence to company rules and policies. This is the other piece. When I think about self-help, everyone goes into whatever field they're in for certain reasons, but I remember, and this is not me saying that, you know, therapists are perfect, but I think in most grad programs, there is an exploration on why the person chose the field of psychology just to really kind of process that out. You know, as therapists, we love to process things out. And when you're in the self-help field and you're proposing to be like a self-help guru or somebody that's there to help someone, part of me wonders if anybody's checking you to understand why, what was your reasoning for going into the field of helping people? Because when you're in the position of trying to help people, in your posturing as an authority or an expert, that power differential starts to come into play. And when somebody is a narcissistic leader, then they exhibit those characteristics of dominance, arrogance, and entitlement. And so anytime there is that sense of entitlement, whether you're seeing that with somebody who is in a position of power in your own life, or maybe somebody who you follow or subscribe to, and they are, you know, seem arrogant or seem like they feel like people owe them something, this is a red flag. This is immediately a red flag to watch out for. Then, okay, so then the next theme is negative life themes. And these, again, these are all going into what constitutes a destructive leader. Personality research shows that destructive leaders aren't born that way. Rather, they develop those tendencies through reaction and adaptation to life events that sometimes occur even in early childhood. So Hogan Assessments tells us that traumatic circumstances like disruptive or abusive family life, poverty, and lack of education are shown to be catalysts for abusive or exploitive behaviors in adults. And we see this rise time and time again. So even in terms of, and the reason I keep readily bringing you know, these individuals up is because I just actually had recorded the episode on them. So they're fresh on my brain. But I think about um, Harvey Weinstein and and Jeffrey Epstein. You know, we know Epstein, he didn't never even finished his education and he lied about it. And Weinstein was bullied. He saw himself as the underdog growing up. You know, he was bullied for his appearance and it falls right into that negative life theme pattern. And, um, 
oh, I want to say something else, but I'm going to, I'm going to hold myself back because I, you know, I know there's freedom of speech, but I just always want to be careful about what I say. Um, but I do think about somebody else who's in the self-help field that just really, really matches this destructive leader, um, characteristic. And there's already been people who have come out against this person. And, um, so I'll be interested. I'm definitely keeping my eye on them because I can just only see maybe in a matter of time that's, something will happen. But anyways, getting back to this, the last kind of dynamic in the development of a destructive leader is the ideology of hate. So Padilla, Hogan, and Kaiser's research also shows that hatefulness is a key component of destructive leadership tendencies and that hate helps to legitimize the use or threat of violence, retribution, and intimidation. We'll use the example of Keith Rainier. I think deep down, he had probably a hatred towards women, and that assisted him in rationalizing the horrific abuses that were going on with the women. You know, he began to see, and, and this is me talking about how toxic leadership can go into these extremes, but that's why when you get into a position of leadership, I always feel like there has to be a checks and balances where I don't know if you've ever seen this, but even when movie stars or people arise into positions of power, I think sometimes I've seen documentaries where they talk about nobody was giving them the real truths. You know, people were kind of yesing them nonstop because they're in that position of power. So they weren't getting that appropriate feedback. I'm not excusing any behaviors of people who have done things negative, but I have noticed that that's a dynamic that plays out. And that's why I think it's always, always important to have that checks and balances in place to examine what's going on underneath the surface. Is there any ideology of hate or superiority or a need for greatness that needs to be checked, whether it's a family member that tells you, you know, this is my Southern roots, but you're acting too big for your britches. You need to take a step back or um, you're kind of starting to be entitled right now or you're acting like a brat. But just to have somebody who's going to give you an honest feedback, and I think the more people rise into power, whether it's financial increases occur or the level of people following them occurs, but it almost seems like less and less they, they, they more and more they get away from their sense of humanity. All right. So let's get into who can sometimes be susceptible. Once again, this is definitely not victim blaming in any way, but I think it's an interesting deep dive into how people can get into the places where they become susceptible to toxic leadership. And I'll even go a step further with, uh, you know, we hear the phrase a lot, don't drink the Kool-Aid or they drink the they drink the Kool-Aid. And even that, that's something I do not stand behind. I don't like to hear when people say that because when those people did drink the drink mixture in Jonestown, they were absolutely susceptible followers who had been brainwashed and manipulated. And I think it really devalues who they were as people because this process of getting involved with somebody who's a toxic leader, it's it very is multifaceted and in some ways 
it, it's anyone could potentially be susceptible. So that's just my side note. Okay, so Hogan talks about the fact that all groups have basic needs for social order, cohesion, identity, and the coordination of collective activity. And these needs are combined with a natural tendency for people to obey authority figures, imitate higher status individuals, and conform to the culture of the group. So there was actually a research, uh, an experiment that was done decades ago at this point. And it was a group of prisoners who, I mean, these were a random group of men and they weren't actually prisoners and they weren't actually prison guards, but for the sake of studying group culture and how people function within a group, there were two groups within this group. One, one group put on their prison jumpsuits and they were the prisoners and the other group put on their uniforms to show that they were employed at the jail and, um, in, or in this mock prison. And lo and behold, if the people in the uniforms did not start to actually take on the roles of misusing their sense of power and the person, the prisoners began shrinking, the faux prisoners began shrinking back, um, and kind of assuming the roles of a follower. It was very interesting. I should have, that just came to me. I wish I would have brought that up, but that was done way back when before there were a ton of regulations on performing research. But I think it points to the fact that just like Hogan says, there is always a need to conform to the culture of the group. So there are generally two followers, two groups of followers, conformers and colluders. Conformers comply with destructive leaders out of fear, while colluders actively participate in a destructive leader's agenda. Okay, so many examples with this. Let's think about Ghislaine Maxwell, who was a colluder with Jeffrey Epstein. Let's think about the woman, her name was Allison. If you've watched The Vow on HBO with the Colt Nexium and Keith Rainier, Allison was a colluder and she actively participated in a destructive leader's agenda. Both types of people are motivated by self-interest, but their concerns are different. Conformers try to minimize the consequences of not while colluders seek personal gain through association with a destructive leader. You know, it kind of goes back. Everybody wants to be seen and heard. And sometimes um, I think that's where colluding comes to be. You're you're the destructive leader's right-hand person and you're seen as powerful as well. So the vulnerability of conformers, and again, Conformers comply with destructive leaders out of fear. So these are definitely the people that are really being victimized and abused. Both groups are, but definitely I think of conformers. But the vulnerability of conformers is based on unmet basic needs, negative self-evaluations, and psychological immaturity. Colluders are ambitious, selfish, and share the destructive leaders' worldviews. However, I would also go on to to share that people who collude with people in positions of power that abuse it are often probably brainwashed. And there's probably a whole process in and of itself how that happens. So moving on. And Hogan also talks about that self-esteem 
and low self-esteem distinguishes followers from leaders and that individuals with low self-esteem often wish to be someone more desirable, which prompts them to identify with charismatic leaders. Research also suggests that people with low self-esteem are more likely to follow a controlling and manipulative, manipulative leader because the follower feels they deserve such treatment. This is why I'm bringing this up in terms of the self-help world. Because once again, self-help around 30, I think it was $32.8 billion industry in 2019. Um, It's proposed to be, I think, up to 34 in 2021. And when you're in a dark place and you're reaching out for help and you're wanting guidance and you're wanting to learn how to get through a difficult position, oftentimes it can put you in a place of feeling vulnerable. And so that's why I think that making sure that whoever you go to see as a provider, this could be for your medical needs, this could be for your mental health, whether it's a coach, a therapist, making sure that there is some kind of standard of accreditation, that they've gone through a certification program, um, they have the education in place because if there is that level of education there, then oftentimes they're being held to a standard of some kind of board. Whether it's a coaching certification, I, I, I'm not quite sure because I'm not a coach, you know, and I don't do coaching per se. Um, but I could only imagine if you get certified by a coaching body, you probably have to re up that certification and meet certain criteria. And so for me, that's always a really good sign to check in. Is this just somebody who's been been through their own anxiety and they they are proposing to be an anxiety coach but they don't really have any real certification in place or is this somebody who went through you know some kind of education and is being held to a standard by somebody else by some kind of accrediting body or board because if you're having you know low self-esteem you're going through a divorce um you're going through grief absolutely you're in a vulnerable place and you know, also if somebody's just broken up with you or it's been the upteen breakup and you're feeling like your low, your self-esteem is very shaky, um, even research shows that people with low self-esteem are more likely to follow somebody who's more controlling and manipulative because potentially the follower feels they deserve such treatment. So something very interesting to think about. All right. So, um, Hogan's research also describes the concepts of self-efficacy, which refer to beliefs about personal capability to perform well, affecting decisions about what activities to undertake, and how much effort to spend on them. And then we talk; they talk about locus of control, which is always something I love to talk about. But locus of control concerns the belief in self-determined fate versus the belief that external factors are governed by external factors. So locus of control essentially means that a person is attributing their success to their hard work. They're not, that's the internal locus of control. Whereas external locus of control, somebody says, I'm just lucky. You know, I didn't do anything. I'm just lucky. It just happened to me. And an internal locus of control is always more beneficial and self-confidence boosting. But it says here, people with An external locus of control tend to not see themselves as leaders, making them easier to manipulate and naturally attracted to others who seem powerful and willing to care for them. Um, So it stands to reason, and this is 
quoted from Hogan Assessments that people who have low self-esteem, low self-efficacy, and an external locus of control are most susceptible to destructive leaders. So I think that, as you can see, it's multi-layered in terms of how people can start to follow someone who is um, a toxic leader. It's not straightforward. It doesn't mean that anybody is... um, stupid or dumb. There are so many psychological factors that are at play. We know that low self-esteem can happen and occur over a long period of time. These, this, This could be an individual who's been through a lot of hardships in life and they're looking for the answer. They are looking for a transformation in life. Um, and it just makes a person more vulnerable. So wanted to share that. And last but not least, we are going to talk about an environment that therefore becomes conducive to the abuse of power. Okay, so thinking about toxic triangle conducive environments, the third element of the toxic triangle concerns the environment that surrounds leaders, followers, and their interactions. So most leadership scholars recognize that situation matters, and I would 100% agree with that because the situations that we are in can absolutely affect our mental and physical health. If our mental and physical health is suffering, then it can make a person more easily able to be manipulated. And Hogan, Padilla, and Kaiser's review suggests that four environmental factors are critical factors in destructive leadership. Ooh, this is so good. Instability, perceived threat, cultural values, and absence of checks and balances and institutionalization. And so that kind of goes into what I was talking about earlier, the absence of checks and balances. We all have to be checked. We all have to receive feedback. And sometimes if it's not something that's that's super favorable, um, if you're receiving feedback from somebody who you trust, like your therapist... I I just want to, more kudos to you. And also other side note, going to therapy is very difficult because there will be times where a good therapist questions and digs a little bit deeper to provide those checks and balances. And um, anyways, okay, let me get back to it. I could talk about that topic all day. So instability. So during times of instability, leaders can enhance their power by advocating radical change to restore order. Leaders who take their power in unstable environments are also granted more authority because instability demands quick action and unilateral decision-making. But once decision-making becomes centralized, it is often difficult to take back. So once that decision-making becomes centralized to the one leader, the checks and balances goes out the window. Um... There's there's nobody, you know, giving them feedback. And the other key factor that I found in my research across time on people who have gotten into positions of power and abused it is that there is a level of in- impulsivity where an impulsivity can sometimes be equated or linked to instability. So demanding that quick action unilateral decision-making. It's up to me what happens. I'm going to be the deciding factor. And so it just kind of supports the research here from Hogan on how instability can go into creating a conducive environment. 
Um, okay, so then the next piece is if there is a perceived threat present. So related to structural and organizational instability is the perception of imminent threat. People are naturally more willing to accept assertive leadership, especially when their employment status is threatened. This goes back to that power and control, which power and control wheel is um, a part of a form of abuse. And if there, if your money, if your income is threatened, then absolutely there is a chance to be more coercive or quote unquote toe the line because you have bills to pay and you know whatever the dynamic is with you and needing to have that income. This is where I think about MLMs, multi-level marketing schemes or pyramid schemes when people are often have to buy into something. They have to buy a large amount of the profit and Anytime there's a financial investment going on, this already can create a power differential and, you know, a situation where there could be an abuse of power. Because if you're buying in, you're spending your hard-earned money on something, for some people who get involved in MLMs, it can be their you know, final kind of ploy, their last bit of income to try to make back that money. And oftentimes it's very, very difficult in these MLM companies to even make back the money. But there's almost that um, exploitation because you've already invested this money. There's, you can't get the money back. And so you're kind of stuck with all these products that you have to sell and then rope other people into selling the products too. So the whole financial aspect really also goes into this. Now, we also know that cultural values can have a role in creating a conducive environment where the power of abuse happens. And history has shown that destructive leaders are likely to emerge in cultures that endorse the avoidance of uncertainty, collectivism, as opposed to individualism and high power distance. This is definitely something that you see present in the cult setting. There's like this collective collaboration that comes about. We all pitch in. It's kind of like a co-op as opposed to making individual decisions for your own well-being. It's almost like no longer are we seen as individuals. We are making decisions based upon what the group needs. Not always a bad thing, but as you can see, just pointing out that um, it can become a toxic thing. So uncertainty avoidance involves the extent to which a society feels threatened by ambiguous situations. So in such societies, people look to strong leaders to provide guidance. This is why I also wanted to bring up um, just a self-help aspect of things where if a person feels threatened by ambiguous situations, let's think about anxiety. Anxiety can be very ambiguous. It can be very hard to understand how do I de-escalate myself? How do I manage these symptoms? Oh, great. Here is somebody who is saying that they can help me. And then they, the person appears strong, um, has, you know, real snappy personality. I'm like envisioning RH a little bit right now as I talk about this, who didn't have any, you know, training per se in anxiety management, but put out a lot of information about anxiety. And before you know it, you're kind of subscribing to this person and um, it just kind of creates this cycle. So last but not least, 
in the toxic triangle, when it comes to um, a conducive environment where power of abuse can happen is, like I, I was saying way earlier on, the absence of checks and balances and institutionalization. So Padilla, Hogan, and Kaiser describe the degree to which managers are free from institutional constraints as discretion. Although leaders need discretion to do their jobs, okay, so there has to be in some ways a level of not secrecy, but a little bit of a level of internal knowledge. Because if the company is doing really bad, but there's a plan to build the company back up, it may not be necessary to put all that fear into employees. So that's where, although leaders need discretion to do their jobs, discretion also allows destructive leaders to abuse their power. So when there's all that secrecy and that ambiguity and a lot of uncertainty and the lack of checks and balances, this is where, you know, if somebody is the holder of all the secrets, it makes them feel more powerful. Knowledge, as we know, knowledge is power and can potentially cause the exploitation and the abuse of power. So I know this has ended up being a bit of a longer episode. <laughs> But I couldn't help but really get into it today because I think that it's very important to know how this dynamic happens because right now, there's so much that, that is going on in the world. Stresses are very high for people, um, maybe even you listening in, and understanding how this kind of comes to be sometimes. And I just go back to what I said about choosing a provider on any level who you feel like there's a good fit, you feel like there's a level of trust there. Um, if it's like more so in the self-help realm, somebody who has some kind of certification or accreditation, because that typically will mean that they they are not just free agents out there in the world doing their thing. They have a licensing body that they have to answer to that regulates their profession. And that's what I'm leading. That's kind of where I want to start wrapping up today is the fact that um, knowing that in this day and age, anybody can label themselves a self-help expert, but understanding that it is always good to check in and understand who am I listening to here? What's What's their background? But also knowing even if there is a background, it may not be the person for you. Um, you're always allowed to switch providers, and then you're always allowed to not share something that you don't want to share. This was one of the strategies that I had noticed um, was called like sisterhood circle, where um, my hairdresser and I actually talked about this, but where um, at RH's events, you know, she had these women stand up, and whenever they had one of their traumas read out loud, and to me, I just that can be re-traumatizing in and of itself. And I just don't know any licensing body that would necessarily support that um, form of self-help because all the literature on trauma just points against it. So I just share this to also empower you. You never have to share something that you're not willing to share. If something starts to feel off or you no longer mesh with someone, I don't care if this is a licensed therapist or your physician or your coach or your place of employment even, which I know that one can be a little bit more tricky, um, but you're always allowed to switch who it is that you're seeing. 
And um, I know this was kind of like a rounded out way of ending this episode, but I wanted to put a spin of empowerment on it because we know that the abuse of power exists. We know anytime there's that power differential, it it has the higher propensity to happen. And I just hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. I hope you've enjoyed the deep dive on how the abuse of power can come to be because it has been prevalent. Who knows? I After I think about today's episode, there may or may not be a part two. We shall see. Again, I am super happy to be back for season three of the three L's. I hope that you've enjoyed today. If something stood out to you, don't hesitate to shoot me a DM. Probably Instagram's the easiest or my email's linked in the show notes. I would love to hear from you um, and your thoughts on abuse of power, how it comes to be. And, um, you know, just keep in touch. That's the one thing about podcasting. And I feel like I say this frequently, but I, you know, it's hard not to have somebody else speaking to you. And that's something I always like to do is have conversation and dialogue about these topics. So welcome back. And I will see you in the next week or two for a follow-up episode. Wherever you are today, take care of yourself. And I look forward to sharing more information here on the three L's. Thanks for tuning in to the three L's today. Catch up with me on Instagram at Rachel and Dine Counseling, where you can contact me about a topic or follow up on today's episode. As always, the information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and not intended to treat or diagnose. Reach out to your own medical or legal provider for assistance and individualized care. Here's to the three L's and being empowered to make decisions that work for you in your life.